You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me, as always, from MMA Junkie in USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it is uh, Memorial Day weekend. Woo! I guess it's the Monday of Memorial Day weekend, so... Uh, the actual day. The Memorial actual day. Memorial Day. The, A lot of people take this day off. The grand finale, you might say, of the holiday weekend. In fact, I hear the MMA Fortnite taking the day off, going to roll in there probably hung over on Tuesday and do the damn thing. Not the CME. Nope. No, we're going to roll in here hung over on Monday and do the damn thing. That's right. Just. Because we respect nothing. Uh, well, you and I are going to enjoy a barbecue at your home. We are. After we record this, just to rub it in for the listeners out there. Going to drink a couple few soda pops. What uh, What's going to be on the menu? Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about that when we're done here. That doesn't sound very promising. I haven't done anything. No prep work whatsoever. Nothing at all? As of this time. We're ordering a pizza, aren't we? We did that yesterday. Oh. Well, we'll, we'll talk about it. Uh, three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, not that we want to make snap judgments about people, but Cody Garbrandt seems like the classic example of a really good fighter that might not be all that cool to hang out with. And in round number two... At least for the time being, the featherweight division remains safe from the overly sexualized victory dance. And in round number three, UFC 199 features dueling title fights this Saturday night. One we've talked about at length, and one we've barely mentioned. So let's give the bantamweights a little bit of love. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a, bit of, a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. You know, I forgot to say at the top of the show. As we record this, Co-Main Event Podcast Dundasso shirts are going through their final days, their final day, really the last few hours. This all feels so familiar. That you can, you know? that you can uh, possibly buy them. After this, they'll be gone forever. I'm having deja vu all over again. It's not coming back. Yeah. After this. That's what they said last time. It's the end of the line. Asked out. Just done. Yeah. So first uh, piece of listener mail this week comes from Taylor Loyal. He writes, the bad news is... Aljamain Sterling was handed his first loss uh, Sunday night. The good news is no one saw it. Discourse. Ooh. So, ouch, kind of a double whammy there. Both yeah. For the uh, empty seats in the arena and the the uh, sheer tens of people watching at home on the FightPass.com. The online subscribers saw this one. The, the premium members of the UFC fan club saw this one. Aljamain uh, Sterling goes out there and after a, a pretty good start in the first round against Brian Carraway, uh and then ends up, uh, I don't know if you want to say folding down the stretch because he didn't really do that, but but uh, Brian Carraway certainly took over the action during the second half of the second round and then and then in the third round to uh, salt away what was officially a split decision verdict, but what seemed like a fairly clear cut 29-28 to me, even though that second round I think you could make an argument was was fairly close. You could also make an argument that if we ever started using the full breadth of the 10-point must system, that you might have room to 
examine some differences between the dominance we saw from Aljamain Sterling in the first round and the just kind of skating by that we saw from Brian Carraway in the second round to the not quite near as dominant in the third round. I mean, it's just wore them all 10-9 uh, one way or another kind of seems like the entire problem with the way we use that system. Like, I would not have had a, a huge problem with a draw in that fight. Yeah, I guess I hadn't considered that, but I, I would not have thought that that was a, a terrible verdict either. Uh, um, it kind of even makes you think of pride scoring, which I know a lot of people bring up all the time about the uh, when whenever they're mad at the 10-point must system. Uh, but this one was one where, like like you said, Aljamain Sterling's performance in the first round was, was pretty much the most dominant uh, – exchanges of the fight and then the second round was pretty close i think you could argue you know aljamain sterling was doing some good work up against the cage throwing knees to uh brian caraway's midsection uh and that round was very close he might even have have given a slight edge to sterling there before like the last minute and 15 seconds of the round when uh uh it went to the mat and and caraway got the better of him uh but it just it does it did make me think as i was watching it about uh the totality of the fight and uh you know how we how we break these these things up because I think you're right that the the first round was uh, was probably the most dominant round for anybody and the second round even though it, it probably rightly should have gone to Caraway was very close throughout almost all of it so it was I, I don't have a problem with Brian Caraway winning it but now that you bring it up I probably wouldn't have argued too hard against a draw and it does seem to for approximately the one millionth time underline the the limitations of how we use the 10-point must system. Well, yeah, you know, and Aljamain Sterling, okay, he gets his first loss here, and there's no shame in losing to Brian Carraway, especially uh, when you consider the, the differences in some of their, their higher-level experience. I think that for a guy like Aljamain Sterling, it, it would not be hard to get me to believe that this is going to be one of those learning experience-type fights. It seemed like maybe he expended a little bit too much energy in the first round, thinking that he had to finish uh, right there at hand, and then that cost him in the later rounds when Brian Caraway's pressure just kind of wore him down. Um, but for Brian Caraway, he's going to, as you know, use this as an opportunity to talk about how he thinks that he should get a title shot off of this. And this is what makes me wonder part about Taylor Loyal's question is that you throw this as the featured prelim on UFC Fight Pass, uh, which I understand you want to do something to make the Fight Pass subscribers feel like they're getting their money's worth, but you also mean that a whole lot of people aren't really going to see it. And is that going to be either the kind of exposure or the kind of performance that gets Brian Caraway a title shot. Yeah. I mean, I, I would feel bad if we didn't throw a little bit of love Brian Caraway's way this during this discussion, because I think that you can say a lot of nice things about his performance and, and we, you know, talk a little bit about how he seems to be one of the most hated on guys in the, in the division, maybe even in the UFC for reasons that I don't quite grasp other than the fact that he dates the women's bantamweight champion. Uh, but, but yeah, I think it is a, a strange, or if they did decide to go that way, it would be a strange marketing philosophy, uh, just because we assume that the fight com does not reach millions of homes. Uh, we don't have any subscribers. It's available numbers. in millions it's, of homes. It's available everywhere. That's, that's true. Uh, and, and, you know, even though they are trying to use these more big ticket fights to, to draw people in and get them to order the service and, and watch the quote unquote featured prelim. Uh, it doesn't necessarily tee up the winner for great exposure and or success. I mean, I guess I would be a little bit surprised if Brian Caraway is able to, to jump right in and, and uh, grab a title shot against the winner of Dominic Cruz and Uriah Faber. Uh, but at the same time, it seems like he did, he has, you know, earned a shot against 
someone like a TJ Dillashaw or, uh, uh, you know, even Cody Garbrandt who won this past weekend. Uh, and I saw Caraway in the news saying it would be quote unquote ludicrous if, uh, if Garbrandt leapfrogged him in the rankings, um, I wouldn't even. Yeah, we never, we never expect anything ludicrous from the UFC's rankings panel. That's right. One of the more respected bodies in in all of sports. Level-headed, if nothing Le- else. Yes, level-headed and respected. Uh, I wouldn't mind seeing him sub- fight somebody like John Dodson or John Lineker. To be honest with you, I think those the, the, those those would both be great uh, matchups. But let's talk a little I bit. John about, Lineker's got business. He's got business lined up. Let's let's do a little bit. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Brian Caraway here. Uh, what what about it? What is it about this dude that rubs people the wrong way so much? I mean, you know, I, he's got his own name tattooed down his side in like borderline Corona lettering. Man, that's not even in the top ten of things he's that not, people dislike about. He's not that Caraway. exciting of a fighter. There are some like, you know, uh, I guess you would say rumors, like shaky reports of him turning down a lot of fights, and he dates Misha Tate. But when I look at that. I guess body of work, you could say. I don't fully understand what it would be about Brian Caraway that would make him a reviled figure. I think the him dating Misha Tate thing is numbers one through seven on most people's list, whether they will admit that or not. And I also think that with Brian Caraway, MMA fans have done the thing where they've decided this is a guy who it would be fun to hate on. And then it depends on how that person can react to that, which that affects which way it's going to go from there. And I think uh, to handle it really sincerely and to try to make the case that you are actually a good dude and people should be nice to you and like you is as sad as it is to say the absolute wrong way to go, because that just makes the like grade school bully type mentality that fuels that kind of thing. It just inflames it the way to go. And I also hate to admit this is to go the Sage Northcutt route, man, and to just roll all the way, roll hard with it. Uh, and just wear it like a badge. And, uh, I, yeah, I think that that's mainly the thing. And the other stuff that people will latch on to hearing like, oh, I heard Brian Caraway turn down this fight, or I heard that he was, you know, rude to one of Misha Tate's opponents, or, you know, whatever they want to go with. I think that that all stems from they've already decided how they feel about the guy. And then they, you know, want to jump on anything they hear. Also, the not terribly exciting fighting style. I think that if he were going out there starching people and just knocking people out left and right, you know, as I think we'll discuss with Cody Garbrandt later, you can do that and have a damn pistol tattooed on your lower back like it's being tucked into your waistband as long as you're knocking people out. Then the fans will look the other way on it. You know what I, would, what I think would be good for Brian Caraway in terms of just wearing it? What? what if he started taking like Instagram photos of himself with the women's bantamweight championship, mm-hmm. like standing in front of the mirror with the UFC title? But we all know that it's the women's 135 pound. Yeah. Okay. That's one option. Uh, option two, sex tape. Okay. You will you now you're talking about going all the way, going full Ray J with it is yeah. what I'm saying. Okay. Just That's, something to think about. It's something to think about. I'm going to, I'm going to tuck that away for later. We're brainstorming here. We're not, none of this is. You know, for real, we're just throwing out ideas, seeing what sticks. Sex tape. We talked about this a little bit before we started recording, but this was the first fight in my recollection where I was watching Brian Caraway do his thing in the octagon, and I realized what, like, a shining example of a Team Quest product he is. To me, when you watch him fight, he obviously he's got uh, Robert Folis in his corner, uh, the old school coach slash mastermind at, at behind Team Quest or or was part of Team Quest when they were doing it out there in Gresham, Oregon. Uh, 
But Caraway fights exactly like all of those dudes from the old school Team Quest, maybe with the exception of Chris Lieben. But like you see him out there and he's this like gritty, like hard nosed, not going to tire out wrestling based fighter who you look at him and you're, you don't expect much from him. He's got a very awkward striking style where he's out there ducking his head real low and then suddenly coming over the top with a, like a wild left hand. Uh, he just, it kind of made me like him more to be honest with you. Cause it was like a little bit of nostalgia for me. I was just like, Oh, this guy fights just like, you know, Randy Couture used to fight. Like he's out there throwing these really weird, awkward punches. I'm into you know, it. I gotta say. Yeah. Well, I bet that you're into that. You know, what I was thinking, uh, kind of along those same lines, uh, is when I was watching, uh, Rick story fight, I was just like, they, they need to revive team quest just so like Rick story can either lead it or be its mascot. Cause doesn't he seem like he would be the most team questish guy. He'd fit right in there. He would, they would have to give him a, a nickname like the bathroom. Or something like that. Yeah, they would not stand for this, the horror story. They'd, they'd come up with something a little little more creative. The next question comes from us from Wayne Bach, or Wayne Batch, I guess, depending on how you want to pronounce it. I I'm guess say Bach, Bach. Bach is probably... Let's go with the classical pronunciation. He writes, Last night I watched rows of prime real estate wasted, while some of the best fighters in the world, many of whom I've never heard of, but who certainly have Wikipedia pages, compete for the masses. Are you fucking kidding me? We are used to it, but and nobody says shit a boot... And he says sick in parentheses. Uh, nobody says shit about it. Do you think is he trying to throw us off? Or maybe he's Canadian. I don't know. Okay. He's either making fun of the Canadians or Wayne Bach himself is Canadian. Definitely one of those. The kings and queens of regional promotions around the planet fight to get to the level where they can be not watched live by quote unquote fans who don't attend their fights. Fuckers who can't be bothered to show up for a Sarah McMahon versus Jessica I or a Jorge Vasvidal versus Lorenz Larkin contest. Should the UFC institute an Oscar style seat warming system so that the hoi polloi in the nosebleeds can fill the good seats until the pretty people, those capital P, capital P, uh, decide to stop eating caviar or foie gras pizza and show TFU the fuck up, the I fuck assume, up. Uh, to that live event they bought, in parentheses, were given tickets to. Or are the nosebleeds empty too? Is TV a boot appearances and the UFC appears to have a, quote, fans giving enough of a shit to show us, unquote, problem. Show up. Even if, oh, show up for the main card. By the way, also, this also goes for Press Row, except for John, quote, blue and less in Brazil, end quote, Morgan, bless his heart. Oh, Wayne Bach is a guy who just doesn't miss much, does there he? There was a lot going on in this email. Yeah. You say that. You could almost say too much. A little bit too <laughs> you much. You could almost say that, but I would never say that. I would also say, you know, God bless the CME listeners who not only care enough to write a question about a topic like this, but also will pepper that question with phrases like hoi polloi and foigua pizza while also using TFU to stand for the fuck up. We there's, assume. Here's the thing. There's a lot of good stuff going on in this email. My advice to Wayne Bach would just be stay within yourself. Don't try to do too much. <laughs> okay. That's a, you know, that's a good, good tip for all the listeners out there hoping to get their email on the podcast. Now we know what Chad Dundas is looking for when he combs through the mail. Uh, but okay. And let's clarify. We're just talking about the prelims here, right? Like by the time you get into the, uh, six fight main card, six fight main card. Uh, you know, people show up for the, for the heart of that. And then they obviously got to go home and go to bed. Cause it's like midnight or whatever. Okay. But, but, uh, you get, you like the fans get in their seats by the time, by the time the, the, the real action gets underway. 
I do understand what he's saying, though, and I, there there need to be a couple uh, caveats here for this particular card, especially because it's Sunday on Memorial Day weekend in Las Vegas, and the I believe the first fight was at 3 p.m. local time on Sunday afternoon in Las Vegas. So there's a lot of other stuff people could potentially be doing. A lot of those people might have even meant to get there on time. A lot of the other people who maybe were given tickets might have had no idea that it even started that early because who the hell would start something like that? Yeah, a the fight at 3 p.m. Flocks of dudes in camo cargo shorts and bad boy tank tops have not yet even begun to hit the strip Yeah, at 3 p.m. They're still up in the room detailing their eyebrows, yeah, so come on. tips. That's right. Getting ready to go hit the, hit the streets. So I think that this particular card might have been an extreme example, but of an identifiable phenomenon that you see often, particularly at the Vegas cards, because it is the, the mix of like, it's a city with a lot of other stuff going on. And you know, you've been to those Vegas cards and you see the way people are rolling right in from the casino floor with their big ass drink in hand straight into the venue and the places like the MGM Grand, one of the awesome things about it that doesn't happen anywhere else except in Vegas is not only do they not make you throw away your outside drink, your outside beverage, your outside alcoholic beverage that you're bringing into this event, they'll just give you a different cup to put it in. Just, just that's how friendly they are about this kind of stuff. So there's a lot of other distractions going on, plus it being the Pacific time zone, the fights there are going to be earlier in the day than people I think are, are expecting. Yeah, I would guess you're probably not going to get a lot of trickle-in traffic for a card like this, even though all of the matchups were at least on paper competitive and uh, you know you had some exciting guys on the card uh, and clearly you know, Cody Garbrandt and, and Thomas Almeida are both exciting guys in the main event, but you see those two guys as the big picture on the UFC uh, poster while you're walking around. Vegas, it's not, you know, that's, if you are the most casual, casual MMA fan and you're just looking for something to do, looking for some way to spend your last 50 bucks on Sunday night in Vegas before you got to pack it up and go home, like that might not suck you in the way it would if you saw like, I don't know, an aging Tito Ortiz or, or Tank Abbott on, yeah. the, on the card. Carrot top. Yeah. Uh, but this is exactly what we were talking about with this card, right? That for the people who aren't super hardcore enough to know who Cody Garbrandt and, and Thomas Almeida are, especially if they see their pictures up in the thing, like, oh, it looks like kind of a, uh, a scarecrowish Brazilian guy versus a dude with a lot of really kind of obnoxious tattoos. Like, that just screams to someone like, hey, there's a UFC tonight. Doesn't matter who it is, just some UFC guys. What have you come to expect when you hear, like, UFC guys? Here you go. Yeah. There they are right there. Yeah, that's true. Uh devil's advocate i guess you could say if i had tickets to go to the ufc i think i would get my ass in the seats for the whole thing because i probably laid down a chunk of change for those especially if they were ringside seats however i mean i understand under the current regime of live programming if like you're just not that interested in the prelims because the prelims ain't what they used to be even though this particular show had some really good prelims like some prelims with known names that you know they didn't all turn out to be amazing fights, but they were the kind of thing that I think you would, you would want to uh, tune in for if, if you were a, a UFC fan, but 
You know, prelims just aren't all musty TV the way they used to be. Well, yeah. Well, what if somebody tells you, you know, you got tickets to go to this UFC event, maybe because you were just in Vegas, you were going, looking for something to do. You didn't spend a ton of money on the tickets because you're not trying to, you know, cage side for UFC Fight Night 88 or whatever. Like you're, you know, you're there. You figured, all right, why not? We saw the the show at the Excalibur with the dudes jousting and shit last night. Tonight, we'll go check out the UFC thing. And somebody tells you, like, hey, we're flying out Monday morning, and somebody tells you, like, all right, the UFC thing we're going to tonight, uh, it's going to last about six hours. And that's not, like, six hours subject to how fast the fights get over. That's just because they're on TV and they got a schedule to keep. You know, they got a six-fight main card, so you got to figure about three hours for that thing. Uh, what, what time do you want to get there? Do you need to be sitting in the MGM Grand Garden Arena for six hours to feel like you got your money's worth? And I wouldn't necessarily blame some people who felt like maybe the answer to that was no. Especially like if you feel like you absolutely got to see some of these fights, you could always sit up in the hotel room or something and watch it on Fox Sports. Uh, or you might think like, all right, well, we're in Vegas, so we're going to fly out tomorrow. I want to hit the blackjack tables one more time and do that. You know, get a couple few beverages in me so I'm hitting the ground running when See, I get there into the arena. I'm going to say that this, it would be a barometer of how well the gambling had been going. Okay. Because, like, I've been in Vegas when it has not gone well and you've got one day left on the trip and you're like, what am I going to do for this six to eight hour period before I can reasonably go to sleep, get up and then go get on the plane? <laughs> So like things. What a done. window into the life of Chad Dunnis. Yeah, uh, we we talked about this the other night about how one of the about going to movies in Vegas, seeing shitty movies. Oh, in that's Vegas, right. Just because you're trying to kill time before yeah. you have to go to the UFC. Uh, Man, we both have a list of just shitty, shitty movies that we've seen there. I don't know the rundown. I believe that was yours, right? No, Walking Tall. Walking with Tall. The Rock. Which is I like, have actually seen the rundown. Another the Rock joint yeah, in Vegas, Killing Time. I bet they're both about an hour and five minutes long. Just really <laughs> short movies. Uh, I don't know if it's still totally like this, but my example of the kind of dude who just goes into the UFC to watch it without knowing anything about it is exemplified when I was at UFC 43 back in 2003, the main event of which, by the way, was Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell's first fight. Uh, the co-main, back before they called it that on this card, was uh, David Lee Tank Abbott against Kimo Leopoldo. Uh, and Kimo ended up beating Tank Abbott, I think, with an arm triangle choke, like two or three minutes into the first round. It was one of those ones where a dude comes in and decides he's not going to fuck around with Tank Abbott, takes him down, <laughs> chokes him out. Okay. Tank Abbott gets up, acts like the other guy's a pussy, and yeah. then we're done, right? Uh, after Chemo beat Tank Abbott, droves of people just walking out of the arena. Wow. Dudes being like, man, fuck this, and getting out of there. Like it was the last eight minutes of a football game and the home team is down by three scores. And that's before Randy Couture and Chuck Liddell take to the cage. Yes. Tons of dudes pissed and walking out. What was the featured prelim on that, that card? Do you remember? Uh, no, I don't, but I bet it was, I bet there was, it was nothing but dudes that you had heard of. Before. <laughs> it was like George St. Pierre. Yeah. All right. Let's see here. What do we got? One more. Just snow. A couple more. 
Uh, this one from Jeff Snow. He writes, what the hell was Sarah McMahon thinking with that plea for a title shot after probably her worst win in the octagon, acting like it's a damn punch card at Subway for a free sandwich? <laughs> I know we're in the era when titles don't hold too much weight anymore, but if you are given the mic and are going to ask for the title shot, at least act like you want it. Don't discourse this shit and move on. Okay, well, we should discourse it a little bit. Yeah. First of all, I've only we to say, read the question. to point out that Jeff Snow managed to misspell Sarah McMahon's first and last name, uh, oh, which yeah. is just kind of impressive for a name like Sarah McMahon. Uh, but I, I also found the way she went about asking for a title shot, uh, really weird. Like on Twitter, I think I compared it to like kind of just a Woody Allen, like character, where she's just like, like, I don't want to trouble anybody, but if if I could, if if it wouldn't okay. be too much, wow, I could. No, that's if you could please have the title shot, be, I would like the title. That's no, uh-uh. that's kind of like the the weird guy from Office yeah. Space and Woody Allen. Uh-huh. Kind of combine them together at the end. Let's workshop that. That needs work. We'll we'll talk about it. Here's later. the thing about Sarah McMahon, though, and and frankly, Sarah McMahon's MMA career has not panned out to be the uh, the shadow of what I thought it it could have been at one time, and maybe what I even hoped it would be. Um, because it seemed like athletically she could have had all of the tools. Obviously it didn't play out like that, but she's never been that great on the mic. She has never had the, uh, the personality, uh, of like a Ronda Rousey, for example. Uh, and at the, and like as a, uh, an extension of that, like the thing, the very thing about Sarah McMahon that I think you could say as a critique and indeed, uh, Rousey did say this leading up to their fight is that it doesn't seem like she wants it that bad. So for her to get on the mic and, and like be super polite, uh, cause she is a, a, a legitimately nice person, uh, and kind of apologetically like fumble her way through. If I could just, I would like, nah, no, uh-uh, let's, if I could turn your mic off, I would <laughs> right now. Uh, that I would, I would say that is very much in keeping for Sarah McMahon and d- did not surprise me in the slightest. Well, it wasn't just the way that she asked for a title shot, but maybe the timing of it because. This was her first win in three fights. Like she's lost, she coming into this fight, she had lost three of four and the one win was a pretty debatable split decision win over Lauren Murphy. Mm-hmm. So she wins a fight snapping a two fight losing streak and she's already had one title shot that she lost in a minute and six seconds. And she is talking about a title shot after, you know, a decision win that was not really a very exciting fight, you know, not a questionable decision at all. But nobody's idea of just a really awesome performance that gets people excited to see you again. And especially to get up there and to say that she wants the title shot, not even talking about who the champion is at the moment, who she wants to fight, just saying that she would like the title, please. If she could have that, that would be wonderful. Uh, and it was just weird to be like, you understand, you know what's going on in the women's bantamweight division right now, right? Like, there's a lot of movement and a lot of action and a lot of, like, for the first time in a while, it seems like there are a lot of possibilities for, you know, the next title shot and the next one after that. And to get up there after you win one decision that everybody was bored by and to talk about how you want the title, it just seems like, all right, let's just all talk about the things that we would want in some more perfect version of the universe. I want a Cadillac, Chad. I just like that. I'd like to put that out there that I, I would like a Cadillac. The uh, if yeah. I could just have a Cadillac. No, though. come on now. Let's move on from that. <laughs> we, we all it's know getting this. better, don't you think? It's getting it's getting a little bit better. I think you should practice it in front of the mirror after we're done here. Okay. 
Uh, yeah, You're going to hang around for that, right? Yeah, I'm staying for the barbecue. Okay. So I assume I'm going to have to sit through numerous terrible Ben Folks impressions for that. Uh, yeah, so maybe Sarah McMahon should have called out like Holly Holm or something like that. Because the point that you make is legitimate, but I think also does open the door for Sarah McMahon. Like there is a lot of movement at the top of the uh, women's bantamweight division right now. And I would think that, that you know, the instability that you have going on there should give somebody like Sarah McMahon an opportunity, even though her record hasn't been stellar uh, as of late. Her three career losses are Ronda Rousey, Misha Tate, and uh, Amanda Nunes. So there you go. Like, that's not, that's not really anything to sneeze at. And you could say her Ronda, the Ronda Rousey stoppage at, at UFC 170, which was a minute and six seconds, was a little bit premature. It's not like she was going to jump up and suddenly win that fight, but it, it also probably couldn't or shouldn't have been stopped at the moment that it did. So uh, I feel where Sarah McMahon is coming from, but I also think, like, as perhaps has been true for the entirety of her career, she could have shaped the message well, a little bit better. Yeah, damn it. If you want to jump up there and be like, I was robbed against Ronda Rousey, I was just getting warmed up and they stopped the fight, give me that fight again. Even that would be better. True. Ronda is not the champion anymore, so you could call her out when yeah. she comes back. There you go. Last question this week comes from Will from Coquitlam. He writes, Cerrone has a podcast now, as does Misha Tate. Mighty Mouse is more famous as a dude who streams video games than a dude who beats up Olympic gold medal wrestlers. Uh, can we thank Reebok for forcing fighters to raise their own profiles to create some revenue for themselves? Or is this all coincidental? Thank you for your time, motherfuckers. Oh, yeah, getting that huge revenue stream that comes with a podcast, right? Is that what they're doing? You know, the big podcast money that's just rolling in. I don't blame Reebok for everybody having a podcast. I blame the motherfuckers who make it look so goddamn easy to I'm have a glad, fucking weekly podcast. I'm glad we make right? it look so easy. Just out here styling and profiling. And everybody, anybody thinks they can do it at this point. They're like, oh, I'll buy a microphone and have a podcast. Creating some revenue for ourselves. Maybe that's what we should tell people is not only is it not as easy as we make it look it's not as profitable as anything. No, we could say literally do anything else. Yeah. But then we would be saying that to mixed martial arts fighters. So someone had probably said that to them at some other point. I would say, lives. yeah, it's not Reebok forcing fighters to raise their own profiles. Although I do think you see that in some other ways. But like the ways where like – People just looking for a little extra visual flair that they can get on themselves when, whenever the camera's on them. I think the podcast thing has to do more with just everybody thinks it's an easy thing to have a podcast. And so why not? You just, all you have to do, in my experience, all you have to do is find somebody who knows about podcasts and just tell them to do it for you. And then you show up 10 minutes late every, every week and boom, it's magic. Yeah, you better hope Cowboy Cerrone does not call me. <laughs> Anyway, you that's better the, hope he doesn't call you too. That's probably true. You, you, that's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you want to air to the co-main event podcast in future weeks, you know how to get a hold of us. You go to the website, comainevent.com and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss from Tuesday through Friday when we're not recording the podcast. It's short. It's humorous. We think you'll like it. If you don't, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, the main event of UFC Fight Night 88 didn't quite live up to the Chad Dundas hype job. Didn't turn out to be the fight of the year, like I thought it might have that potential. Uh, but it turned out to be a one-sided working by Cody Garbrandt against Thomas Almeida. And, and Garbrandt actually came into this fight as the slight underdog, although it was, it was pretty close to a pick'em. Uh, and I told you about this before the fight happened, but in a, in a story that I wrote for Bleacher Report, uh, leading up to this fight, uh, I read this, the following quote from, uh, Garbrandt when he's talking to Damon Martin from Fox Sports. He, he said, this is from Garbrandt. He said, I watched this guy when he first got into the UFC and everybody talking about him being an animal. I'll take that guy out. I'd probably knock him out with my jab, to be honest. A stiff jab will bust him all up. And when I read that, I thought to myself, Geez, Cody Garbrandt, that makes you sound like kind of a jerk. Especially if you read Thomas Almeida's super complimentary quotes about you. <laughs> uh, and in retrospect, he was kind of right. He yeah. went out there and indeed did bust Thomas Almeida all up. And at least started things off tagging and touching him up with the jab a little bit. Well, and I think it was a really smart way to fight a guy like Thomas Almeida from Cody Garbrandt. Because I think the book on Thomas Almeida that we've seen so far is that you can get on him early. And you can hurt him early uh, because he has kind of a little bit more of a, a wide open style. Um, but he seems fairly comfortable with being rocked early and can, if you don't put him away when you have that opportunity, he will come back and just be savage later on. Uh, like kind of one of those pitchers that you might see where, yeah, you can, if you start knocking him around in the early innings, then that might be it. But if you don't and he finds a groove, then you're screwed. Uh, and that seems to be kind of the, Thomas Almeida's M.O. And so Cody Garbrandt, he goes in there and he puts that pressure on him right away. And then when he does have him hurt, he doesn't just go charging in and into a full-scale brawl. He's still being pretty careful and was still picking his shots really, really well. Especially with that right hand that he caught him with there at the end. I mean, it was just really well-timed, waiting for Almeida to, to throw. Uh, and Almeida just kind of making the mistake of, getting rocked a little bit and thinking, all right, I'll just kind of cover up and wait for this to be over, wait for it to be my turn to start uh, punching the other guy in the face, as has usually happened for him. And Cody Garbrandt was really smart during that period and just like waited, waited, kept that pressure on, uh, and then attacked. And as we've seen, uh, and this is, I think, one of the things that's going to get people really excited about Cody Garbrandt is he has a hell of a lot of power at bantamweight, which we just we don't see a ton of uh, fighters at bantamweight who are both like really good, technically sound fighters who also have that kind of power. It seems like it's usually one or the other. Yeah, coming into this fight, Almeida's UFC career had gone fight of the night, performance of the night, performance of the night, performance of the night. And he really put himself on the map uh, with that flying knee KO of Brad Pickett at UFC 189. And, and he got rocked early in that fight, too. Right, and followed that up with a uh, highlight reel KO of Anthony Burchick uh, last November. Uh, and this was a dude that seemed like the UFC kind of understood what they had in him because after his debut against Tim Gorman back in November of 2014, uh, all of the rest of his fights had been main card affairs. They they certainly weren't hiding Thomas Almeida. It seemed like they realized that he could be a guy who might be able to uh, catch on with some popularity in Brazil, just as a lot of the company's more popular Brazilian attractions begin to fade. Uh, and he's still only 24 years old. This loss to Garbrandt obviously doesn't end things for him, uh, but he's going to have some makeup work to do. He's, he's definitely going to have to try to rebuild that momentum that he had coming in, uh, especially after those two kind of highlight real KOs in a row. On the other side of the coin, Garbrandt uh, has advanced his record to what, 9-0 and now, I believe? Uh, and he is also 24 years old. 
Uh, yes, nine and zero. Yeah. Um, and you're right. This dude packs a heck of a lot of power in his hands for a 135 pound man. Uh, and you would think at this point, um, he's he's probably going to jump up into that into the top five there, and and you know be looking at uh, a high profile opponent. And uh, I would think just because of the nature of the division. Uh, another win or two, and we might be talking about him as a, a potential challenger for Dominic Cruz or uh, teammate Uriah Faber, even though those two dudes said that they will not fight, even if it's for the title. Well, yeah. Well, and also a point about Cody Garbrandt getting on the mic afterwards and complaining about not being ranked. Uh, that, and I know we love to give shit to the UFC rankings panel, uh, you know, kind of anonymous and depleted as it is, but, uh, this one is, I think it's fair that maybe he, cause he wants, if he wants to be ranked, it would basically be on being ranked on what people think he might do eventually. Because before this fight, he hadn't really fought anybody that would get you onto those rankings. I mean, he beat everybody he fought, but he was again, eight and no as a professional wins over guys like, uh, you know, Henry Briones and, and Marcus Brimage, uh, and Augusta he wins over Marcus Brimage have been known to launch. UFC Hall of Fame careers. I mean, wins over Marcus Brimage or like, you know, hitting a home run off of some guy in the minors that you might go on to do something after that and you might not. Uh, it worked for the little Irish fellow. It That's did. All I'm saying. It did. Uh, but I think that if, if you're asking to, like, hey, why wasn't I ranked before this? Well, if you'd fought somebody who was ranked, then maybe that's a good way to get ranked. Uh, so I don't, I can understand why. He, he might feel that he was being overlooked, but I can also understand why people would feel like when he had eight fights, uh, and three of them in the UFC, and, you know, two of them against dudes without Wikipedia pages, I can understand why people might have looked at him and felt like we don't yet know what to make of him. But this one is, you know, a really legit win and one where you can see, uh, the kind of potential that a dude like that can have. Like if he, if he has that kind of technical striking ability and that kind of power, there's not a whole lot of people in that division who can say that. And he's a, a threat for a whole lot of people in that division, especially I thought about it when Brian Caraway was talking about it. You know, he said that it would be ludicrous for him to jump up ahead of him in the rankings. Uh, and even though Carbrandt had a, an amazing fight that he thought that, you know, he had done more as a body of work. And I thought, I wonder what in his heart of hearts, Brian Caraway would think if you told him, okay, you know what? We've decided you against Cody Garbrandt. That one's next. Uh, because something tells me there would at least be some part of him that would think, Oh shit. Well, and I think the really good thing about Cody Garbrandt, or at least the good thing if you are Cody Garbrandt, uh, is that he makes an exciting matchup against almost any of these guys in the top 15, especially, you know, if you start putting him out there with the hitters like the Michael McDonald's, uh, you know, TJ Dillashaw, John Dodson's of the world, like those all seem like appointment viewing for me, if you ask me, especially if uh, Cody Garbrandt is going to talk to the media beforehand and say he's going to bust your whole shit up with his jab. Uh, that, that to me is, is, you know, seems like a, a, a recipe to make this kid a guy that you want to watch at, a, at 135 pounds. Uh, and typically when the UFC gets a, a young up and coming uh, striking based potential star like that, they do throw him out there with a veteran wrestler like Brian Caraway and let them lose by unanimous decision. 29, 28, <laughs> maybe we're maybe we've entered a new a new era here uh as far as matchmaking is concerned do you think like do you see anything from cody garbrandt i mean the power in the hands is formidable but like uh, could this be a guy to who would give dominic cruz trouble 
because it seems to me like Dominic Cruz is kind of tailor-made to, to run circles around a guy who fights like that. Yeah, and that would be my question if we start talking about how soon Cody Garbrandt at, you know, what, 24 years old and with a 9-0 and professional record is going to think about moving up to one of those top echelons of the division because that is asking an awful lot to go up against somebody like that who has that kind of experience and just who has uh, that kind of style. I think that would be a, a difficult thing for him right now, but I don't know. I think... It could be as soon as this time next year, maybe it's a different question. I also would think that if the UFC is looking at it, uh, they seem to like Cody Garbrandt. They're probably feeling like right now we have enough immediate options at bantamweight. There's no big rush. Uh, let's make sure we, we get to the right place at the right time rather than just trying to, for a dearth of challenges, throw somebody in there. You want to do Are You Fucking Kidding Me? Sure. And we'll move do, on to round two. Let's do all your Well, then I suppose that this week, surprised wasn't totally the right word for what I felt when I saw Tito Ortiz's giant melon bobbing around in the background of that Donald Trump rally. Because we know that Ortiz had appeared previously on The Celebrity Apprentice, uh, the reality show that is pretty much Donald Trump's major qualification to once be, in the future become the leader of the free world. Uh, and we also know that Tito Ortiz has not been in the running to be the sharpest knife in the drawer for some time now. But I do think that the right words are, are you fucking kidding me? Because, you know, here is a guy whose main gimmick when he was an active fighter was to walk to the cage with the American flag on one side and the Mexican flag on the other coming out to support a guy who has made it one of the bullshit centerpieces of his bullshit presidential campaign that he is going to build an actual literal wall between Mexico and America and to get the Mexican government to pay for it. So I don't know, man, Tito, are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. And does a, and I mean, not that anything could really dissuade anybody who still feels like Donald Trump is the guy they want to support, but you said Tito Ortiz is not exactly known for being the sharpest knife in the drawer. When he endorses Donald Trump, is that the point where a lot of people think, I need to re-examine my whole philosophy here? <laughs> Am I on the same side as Tito Ortiz on this one? Well, Chad, my, are you fucking kidding me? I'm just going to read to you a headline that I found on TMZ.com. Okay, I'm ready. UFC fighter Derek Lewis. I got a gold dinosaur. $125,000 for custom T-Rex. Do those words even make sense to you? What does that mean? I'm not sure what we're referring to here. Apparently, a, a T-Rex is some kind of little car. There's a picture of it. Um, I don't, I don't really know what this is, but it's a little car, uh, and a little car for a big man. Yes. It, like, and he's standing next to it and it seems dubious that he can fit in it. Um, and it's a little sporty kind of car that he is apparently going to drive and that he had these people, uh, custom build this for him because he told them he wanted quote, the baddest T-Rex he could build. Um, and then it's wrapped in a custom gold body wrap and cost him $125,000. Are you fucking kidding me, Derek Lewis? You know you're my guy. You know I love your social media presence. But I worry about your long-term financial health with stuff like this. Because I'm, I'm telling you, I'm looking at this car right now, and it does not scream resale value. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you fucking kidding me? Well, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back 
with round number two. Well, Chad, in the co-main event on Sunday night, the man known to sports talk radio hosts as Renan Barrio was born again anew as a featherweight, and it didn't maybe go exactly the way he thought it would. Took on a very tough opponent in Jeremy Stevens and lost a unanimous decision after getting rocked by Jeremy Stevens a couple times uh, midway through the fight. Looked to me, at least, like we did see a size and strength difference at work in this fight. Now, I know that maybe that doesn't necessarily mean that uh, Barrow has to forget about life as a featherweight, because Jeremy Stevens, after all, would, did have a, a decent career as a lightweight before he moved down to featherweight. But did this make you think maybe Renan Barrio, the man who you revile for his, you say over-sexualized, I say just sexualized enough victory dance, did he maybe think of this weight class jump as the fighter's false friend? That it was just going to solve all his problems and really it just introduced new ones? Hanan do Nascimento Mota Pegado, also known as the Baron. Hanan Barrao, Renan Barrio. I'm sorry, what was the question? I was. You're going to play back. You're going to have to play back Hanan the tape and listen to it for yourself. Nascimento Mota I'm not repeating Pegado. myself. No, I mean, we've talked about this before a lot of times on the podcast that. Uh, Fighters who get themselves into a hole tend to either think or hope that changing weight classes is going to be this cure-all elixir that they're going to take and suddenly they'll be right back in the mix for a championship and it almost never works out that way. Uh, I think you could ask Jeremy Stevens about that. In fact, a guy who, as you said, came down from lightweight uh, to the 145-pound division. Here, of course, you had Hennon Barrow. Uh, coming up to featherweight from bantamweight where he was the longtime champion until he met up with TJ Dillashaw for a pair of fights. Uh, he also had not fought since July 2015, so borderline a year for him being out. Uh, and this was kind of a, this was a fight in three acts, like Aljamain Sterling, Brian Caraway, you know, Hennon Burrell came out and looked pretty decent in the first round, uh, and was, was, you know, he, uh, he's fighting a big featherweight in Jeremy Stevens. And, but I thought that like physically, I didn't hate the way Burrell looked. Like I thought maybe cutting out the weight cut to get all the way down to 135 might be a positive, uh, change for him. But, uh, but then, you know, uh, Jeremy Stevens hits real hard, man. And in that second round, he sure touched up Hen and Burrell a lot, especially with the uppercut. And so I don't know if you have a case where uh, Barrow had suspect cardio or just a situation where maybe there was some ring rust and then you get punched in the face super fucking hard. Uh, and it's kind of hard to go on from that. Uh, but, yeah, he certainly didn't uh, perform the way I think maybe he hoped he would in the second and third round. Um, I don't know that that necessarily means the end of the line for him at featherweight, but uh, it certainly means... I would like to see more of him there before I figure out what I think was it would be the best move for him. Well, yeah. Well, and I think one of the things that seemed to tire him out a little bit was it seemed like his game plan was, all right, we're going to stay kind of on the outside. Or we're not going to stand still and let Jeremy Stevens try to take your head off. 
We're going to counter him. We're going to hit him with, you know, we use our quickness and try to be quicker to the punch than he is. Hit him with those quick shots. Stay, stay active. Keep moving. Don't let the feet stop moving. And then also mix in some takedowns. And it didn't seem like, it seemed obvious early on that the takedown part of the game plan was not working. That Jeremy Stevens was not going to be easy to take down. And when he did get him down, uh, Rao just couldn't really keep him there for any length of time at all. And he popped right back up. And it seemed like he was wearing himself out trying to do it. And I don't know if that was his strategy to help him seal rounds for himself. That, okay, late in the round, maybe we'll go for a takedown. If it was to keep Jeremy Stevens guessing. If it was, here's a, a situation where if I find myself at a range I don't like, uh, that I'll shoot in for the takedown. And even if we just stall there against the fence, at least I'll get a chance to breathe and I won't have Jeremy Stevens thumping on my skull. Whatever it was, that just didn't seem to me like, like that seemed like a part that should have been jettisoned pretty early on in his game plan. And instead he was sticking with it until the very end. Uh, and maybe could have worn himself out that way. And also I think that's where you saw some of the differences in size and strength is that when he got there, even when he could get him down, uh, it wasn't like, you know, where you're holding Michael McDonald down and slowly working, getting your choke tighter and tighter. That just wasn't going to happen against Jeremy Stevens. Uh, and so that does make me wonder how, how other matchups in the division might go for him. There was an exchange late in this fight in the third round. I think it was like with about a minute to go where Barrow almost had Jeremy Stevens down. He was attempting a takedown against the cage. Uh, and damn near had it, mostly had it. And then Jeremy Stevens, like you said, was kind of able to power his way out, was, was able to stand up in that last minute and land some more hard shots. Had he not been able to do that, uh, I think, you know, it, uh, it's possible that Hen and Barrow could have won this fight by a unanimous decision, uh, instead of losing it that way. Uh, and I wonder how different the conversation that we would be having right now would be if that had happened. Because that, I mean, it seemed like Jeremy Stevens saved the fight for himself when he was able to get back to his feet. So I'm a little bit hesitant to, to fall in line with some of the larger, col like, cultural narrative that, that Barrow is just shot, that he can't do it anymore. Well, I definitely don't think he's shot. I mean, oh, I'm not you, saying that's what you're saying. I'm saying that that view of Hen and Barrow is out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think if anything, Taking some of those shots he did from Jeremy Stevens uh, and still being in the fight all the way to the end, I think that should put the the end to some of those rumors that he's just a shot fighter and that he can't take anymore because he took some monster hits from Jeremy Stevens, a guy who you know was knocking out lightweights uh, with with those kind of shots. So I think that should give him at least some confidence. What I wonder, did you hear Jeremy Stevens afterwards talking about how Dana White made him a promise, promised him something if he won this fight? Do we ever hear what it was that he promised him? No, I have no idea. Well, that seems weird to me. That makes me feel like I should have listened to Jeremy Stevens' post-fight interview. Well, do it, that. if you had, you would have listened to him uh, congratulating his beautiful niece who he lives with and who he basically helped raise on graduating high school and she's off to college now, which is proof hey, that congratulations, Jeremy, you can do anything you put your mind to, I guess, because and also she graduated high school. made him a shadowy promise. Yes. Interesting. The plot thickens. I didn't know that. Yeah. I guess we'll have to figure out what that is. Yeah, I've been looking around on the internet for it today and I did not see what the promise was. Um, yeah, but it's always weird to me when you hear like the promoter said, go beat up this guy and I'll give you something. That's Other strange. than money? Other than the money that was in the contract? That's <laughs> usually how that works. Yeah. Hannon Burrell, uh, after winning some 30 fights in a row or going a little bit more than 30 fights without a loss, is now one in three dating back to early 2014, the last time that we saw him look like 
the Hennen Barrow of old was when he beat Uriah Faber at UFC 169. I don't know, man. Like you, you said, we, we, I guess I'd like to see this guy at featherweight again, but like, what do you do with him? And what is our realistic ceiling for Hennen Barrow at this point? Because even though I said he doesn't look like he is a totally spent fighter, it also seems like his time among the elite is, has probably ended. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't know what you do if you're Hennon Brow at this point or what the UFC really wants to do with him. Uh, it, it seemed like a part of me would like to tell him, maybe go back down to bantamweight and try that again. And yet at the same time, like we've talked about before, you can't really do the thing where we talk about, um, we don't want to see guys making extreme weight cuts and then advocate that guys make what, you know, has clearly for Hennon Brow at times been a fairly extreme weight cut. Um, but I don't know. I, I just, I feel like there are plenty of featherweights that Hen Brow is going to go out there and beat. The question I would have if I were thinking strategically, uh, about the career of Hen and Brow is, is the UFC going to match you up with those featherweights? Right. It's interesting that you said that about Jeremy Stevens saying that Dana White made him a promise because actually, as I was watching this fight, I was wondering to myself if Jeremy Stevens was something of a UFC favorite because he certainly has that fighting style. He goes out there, by the way, kind of like Brian Barberina looking very much like a 17th century pirate with the beard <laughs> and the and the hair shaved on the sides uh but he certainly has that kind of like a headhunter Robbie Lawler style heavy-handed approach that the dudes who own the UFC seem to love and and seems to make you if not a marketable fighter the kind of guy that can hang around for a long time and match up against everyone and i remember when Jeremy Stevens got arrested uh Probably was he supposed to fight Eve Levine that night uh, at lightweight? You remember he was this UFC fight night in Minnesota? Eve Edwards, I believe. Oh, Eve, yeah, Eve, Eve, Eve Levine, Eve Levine would be the referee. Mixed martial arts referee. I bet Jeremy Stevens would probably beat him in a fight. Uh, yeah, he's supposed to fight Eve Edwards, and he got arrested like the day or the day before the the event in Minnesota, and like they were it, frantically trying to get him out. It was weird. It seemed like the UFC had fucking gone to the mattresses to try to get him out of jail so that he could fight that night. And obviously it didn't end up happening, but uh, it was strange at the time that the UFC brass made the kind of declaration that they were going to do whatever it took to get the, get him get quote unquote the kid out of jail so that he could come out there and, and earn some money. Uh, and now they're making him promises before he fights Hannon Burrow. I don't know, man, what's going on. What's really going on? Is yeah. that what you're asking? Yeah. I wish I could tell you. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, next Saturday night, June 4th, from the palatial and remodeled forum in Inglewood, California, UFC 199, featuring dueling title fights. In the main event, you have Luke Rockhold taking on Michael Bisping in a short notice uh, replacement fight after Chris Weidman was injured and could not make the date. And in the co-main, you've got the bantamweight title on the line, uh, the division's most storied rivalry between Dominic Cruz, who is the champion, and Uriah Faber. Now, we've, uh, we've, we've talked a little bit about Rockhold versus Bisping the last week or two. Uh, I assume we will try to put a bow on that with a couple minutes of talk. 
before this event actually happens. But let's start out with Dominic Cruz versus Uriah Faber, because we have not really talked about that much at all. Um, and their bad blood goes back to the WEC days, I believe. Uh, something about Dominic Cruz signing his name over Uriah Faber's face. That's on right. The, on the poster. It's all it takes. Which, uh, and thus a if, storied rivalry is born. If you, as if you, you wanted it. to know what kind of petty bullshit you can build a multi-fight <laughs> story rivalry on. Uh, clearly Dominic Cruz returned from, from a long time off and, and injuries that we thought at one point might force his retirement uh, to complete one of the great Cinderella stories in all of UFC and MMA history to win back the 135 pound crown that he never lost. Now he fights arch nemesis, but Uriah, Uriah Faber, who I think is a viewed, uh, in all quarters as being sort of on the decline. Their second fight was sort of close. Uh, Dominic Cruz kind of handily won a unanimous decision, but it was one of those fights where uh, you could see if the judges scored it any which way. Do we have any reason to believe that Uriah Faber has as good a shot now as he did then? Uh, I would have said the best reason to believe that he had a decent shot was all the time that Dominic Cruz was off with all those injuries. But then, Jesus Christ, you saw how he looked when he came back against TJ Dillashaw and looked as good, if not better than ever. Um, whereas I feel like Uriah Faber probably has lost a step uh, compared to that Uriah Faber. I also feel like the MMA gods have just made up their minds at this point that a great, hilarious thing to do is to keep giving Uriah Faber an endless stream of UFC title shots without ever allowing him to win one. He's kind of their little Sisyphus in cornrows, and they really seem to enjoy that. I don't see them allowing him to, to actually win a UFC title here. Well, yeah, he has the one kind of signature win over Michael McDonald back in late 2013 uh, where he choked him out in the second round. And that was back when McDonald had an awful lot of hype at this weight. Uh, other than that, he's lost to both Hedden Barrow and Frankie Edgar. Uh, and his wins to set himself up for this title shot were against Alex Caceres, Francisco Rivero, and Frankie Sines, just in case you want to know what kind of resume Uriah Faber needs to put together to be awarded a UFC title shot. Uh, what do you think he needs to do to get right with the MMA gods? Do you think they're punishing him for something? Uh, maybe he needs to, uh, you know, murder and sacrifice a team member. I don't know. It's, it can't be easy. Otherwise, he would have done it by now. Oh, wait a minute. What if he needs to vow that he will always wear a shirt? And he's just not willing to do that. That's, I mean. That is a bridge too far for your IFA. Ten pounds of gold. Ain't going to get it done there for your eye favor. Uh, Dominic Cruz obviously came back with that split decision win over TJ Dillashaw uh, in January. He is 31 years old at this point, but like I said, a lot of mileage on the body, uh, a lot of uh, injuries, a lot of uh, situations where his, his physical self seemed to be his own worst enemy a lot of the times, but no real reason to believe that he won't head into this fight against Uriah Faber firing all on all cylinders, which I think at least in my view creates a puzzle that I don't, I honestly don't know what Uriah Faber does about that at this point. Yeah. I don't know either, but I don't know if it seems like a, a huge pressing problem for him either. I also though, when I'm, when I had to sit through, seven to eight thousand ads for this event um i feel like the first time i heard uriah faber and dominic cruz go back and forth where he tells where dominic cruz tells him that he lost and uriah faber says not every time check the record bud uh 
the first time I was like, I find it a little, I don't know. It's weirdly grating to hear Uriah Faber keep calling somebody bud. And then by the 8,000th time, I, I was ready to burn it all down, Chad. I don't know if I can take it anymore. The fight has got to hurry up and get here, bud, because I'm losing my damn mind. What is it? I can tell you that it's grating for me just to hear you say that to me once, let alone 800 times. So. Did you listen to the ad, bud? I mean, that's that's twice now, I guess. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the main event uh, one more time. Luke Rockhold, a rematch against Michael Bisping. Wasn't supposed to go down this way. We, it was supposed to be the rematch between Luke Rockhold and uh, Chris Weidman, but Chris Weidman's pile of trash neck intervened. And now we get uh, this second fight between Rockhold and Bisping, which, like we said last week, if nothing else, feels like sort of a feel-good moment for Michael Bisping, who is currently riding a three-fight win streak and and capped that with the unanimous decision win over the ghost of Anderson Silva uh, in February, had long been regarded as one of the best fighters in the UFC, never to fight for the UFC title, uh, and is finally going to get his opportunity to go out there uh, against Luke Rockhold and try to make history, although, as we said last week, kind of the ultimate Bisping situation, both positively and negatively. Yeah, it is kind of peak Bisping for this. Uh, also, when I was uh, speaking of those ads, the uh, I mentioned to you before that it seemed like they just kind of recycled the Michael Bisping, Luke Rockhold stuff. Like they're just going to act like, all right, we're going to acknowledge that there was a first fight between them, but that doesn't mean we need to throw away all these great audio clips. Uh, especially there's one of Michael Bisping saying Luke, that uh, Luke won't shut up, and so we're going to have a fight, which, A, that's not why you're having a fight this second time. We all know the complicated reasons why that uh, it turns out you two are fighting. And also, well, I agree that one of you will not shut up. I do not agree with your assessment on who that somebody is, Michael Bisping. Uh, yeah, these guys lapsed into fairly, uh, rote MMA style referring to each other by gendered, uh, names as a means of putting each other down pretty much as soon as this, uh, rematch was announced, which I think is always kind of, uh, disappointing, but at the same time, it just hammers home again, the point that we've long made about Michael Bisping. And that's, you book this guy a fight against anybody and he's going to come out there and give you the Michael Bisping show both for better and for worse, whoever it is. He's going to do his best to uh, cut a little promo. Yeah, full blood feud. But, I mean, the thing with Michael Bisping that I guess makes me, in a way, give him a little bit more of a a pass or a little bit more leeway on it is that I believe that he believes it. You know, I don't believe that he just is thinking to himself like, all right, let's go out there and drum up some interest in this fight and talk a bunch of crazy bullshit to this guy uh, the way some other people have where they clearly – They know exactly what buttons they're pushing. I believe for Michael Bisping, he is pushing those buttons on himself uh, for his own purposes. That He seems to kind of need that or enjoy that or maybe thinks that that helps him. But he seems to to be living his gimmick there. Yeah, he seems to be a guy who is motivated, motivates himself around uh, that kind of mentality. The not necessarily a me against the world type mentality, but a... uh, uh, the you have personally wronged him in yes. some way mentality. Well, which and really Luke Rockhold what... kind of has personally wronged him by beating the hell out of him in their first meeting. That's true. I just don't see what you do differently if you're Michael Bisping where you think like, okay, you got because you got to tell yourself something, right? You got to tell yourself, here's what I'm going to do in this fight that's going to make the outcome completely different. And I don't have any idea what that something might be for him in this matchup. 
What other fight on this card are you most looking forward to? Because I bet you can look down there and see which one I'm looking forward to. I'm going to say Dan Henderson versus Hector Lombard. That's your jam. Man, you disappoint me, sir. <laughs> yeah? T-City, baby. Preliminary main event. Brian Ortega against Clay Guida. You know Brian Ortega is on Team Dundas, right? Well, I'd heard I'd heard rumblings that he he had put in an application, whether he knew it or not, and it was being reviewed that there was a background check underway. I didn't know that he had been actually fully accepted onto Team Dundas. There's no way Brian Ortega would pass any kind of background. Check. <laughs> uh, Clay Guida Ortega- seems like he's thrown in this specifically to get triangled. That seems like somebody's like, let's see who will almost certainly take Brian Ortega down over and over again, but without really hurting him at this point in his career, and will probably at some point get submitted. I know Clay Guida. I mean, you can't fault the, the thinking. It's matchmakers. They ain't dumb. Well, if you ask me uh, to go ahead and get hyped about something other than, you know, one of the top two fights, I'm going to say Max Holloway and Ricardo Lamas. That's not a bad choice. Because not a bad choice. I, I, I'm at a point right now where I'll watch Max Holloway fight every damn weekend if you give me a chance to. I'm all about it. All right, well, you want to do Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for this week? Sure. Ben, what's your Just Saying Stuff this week? Well, Chad, at some point during the UFC Fight Night 88 broadcast, which, by the way, the team on the the mics, John Anik and Brian Stan, again, I submit to you, is, or at least ought to be considered, um, because in my mind it is the A-team as far as UFC broadcast teams go. Brian Stan did excellent technical analysis. They work really well together. Uh, it's a great team. I love it. I wish I could have them commentating for every single event. However, did I hear at some point during the broadcast, John Anik said that Dana White's looking for a fight might just be the best new show out there. Did that actually happen? Or did I, did I have a weird NyQuil hallucination at some point during the event? That sounds like it could have been your fever dream, but also like something that would be said on a UFC broadcast. I swear that something along those lines was said, by John Anik. And I guess I'm just saying, I understand you have a job to do, but damn it, you also have a name. You have a name you're going to carry beyond this, this one job, beyond, beyond this one night. And I just, I just hate for somebody to one day sit you down and ask you if you really think Dana White's looking for a fight is one of the best new shows out there just to watch the tortured expression. That would flicker across your face as you battle the demons within. Just saying. Just saying. Well, Ben, you know, we've been talking the last few weeks about Conor McGregor, Floyd Mayweather rumors and about how they just won't go away. So I guess this week I'm just saying thank God for Teddy Atlas, the longtime ESPN boxing analyst who entered the fray this week uh, via pithy handwritten letter which you know is always going to get me excited yeah anytime you're a sucker for that to write a handwritten letter uh it seemed as though maybe the head honchos at espn had tried to draw teddy atlas into this discussion by asking him a bunch of questions about uh mcgregor versus mayweather and he responded uh thusly they asked him how he would train conor mcgregor to fight floyd mayweather so i'm just going to read some choice cuts from teddy atlas's handwritten letter here First off, I wouldn't. He has no chance in a traditional boxing match. His only chance would be with MMA rules, where he could try to bring Floyd to the mat and where he could, of course, easily be the victor. He would need about five years, and I'm being very generous and conservative, of boxing training and experience to even entertain the thought of being competitive with any A-plus level boxer. 
Then Atlas was asked how long it would take him to prepare McGregor, and he repeated, none. Think of it in terms of social security. And then they asked if the fight was announced, uh, what kind of betting line would he set on it? And Atlas replied, none. If I were a betting odds maker, I would not list a betting line on this. I'm just saying, thank God for Teddy Atlas. Just saying. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 199 and look ahead to all kinds of UFC and MMA news to come. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You seriously haven't done anything to prepare for this barbecue? You mean other than say, hey, do you, you want to come over and have a barbecue? Yes, that was, that was step one. It's like 90% of the preparation. I, was, I had hoped that something that maybe you know,